understand a bit more about you. So you're the director of Church Society. I am. So what is it that you actually do? <laughs> well, given what Roz said earlier, my, I, my reply has to be, it's my job to keep Roz under control. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I basically have an oversight um, to direct the, the whole society. So I'm on all the committees, you know, the finance committee and the, the patronage committee um, and everything like that, and lots of the publishing things. When I, when I was taken on, uh, one of the things that they wanted to do was to expand what we do in terms of publishing, more modern things. So we've always published this very old commentary on the 39 articles by Griffith Thomas in that disgusting... Um, stripy <laughs> orangey yellow cover over there um, it's an excellent book um, but it's just a, not a great cover um, and so w we've done lots more publishing in the last 10 years so that's one of my main things and then looking after the staff and making sure that they're happy so that they can do their jobs because they can reach parts that I can't um, I'm, I'm not an incumbent but having three incumbents on the staff of Church Society is brilliant um, as our regional director, uh, directors. I'm not a woman, so having two women as ministry staff um, is also brilliant. Um, yeah, and then I, I look after David Meager and uh, Sophie, our finance and administrative personnel as well. So, yeah, I sort of oversight over everything. And why do you do it? Why do I do it? For the glory of God and the good of England. That's <laughs> <laughs> it. It's my motto, for the glory of God and the good of England. I've got it written in Latin on the back of my uh, iPad, just to remind me. And also, so if anyone nicks my iPad, you know, I know it's not theirs unless they can translate it, I suppose. Uh, except I've just told you all what it means. So if anyone wants an iPad... Lee, uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Wasn't expecting it to be so, so, so simple and succinct, but that's wonderful. Um, we'll hear more from Lee later as he opens God's word to us. Thank you to the choir for leading us in the last verse. <laughs> uh, please take your seats. Um, come to hearing God's word read and then preached. Helen's going to read it for us in a minute, and then Lee will proclaim Christ to us from the scriptures. But can I first pray, and I'll use the collect for the second Sunday in Advent. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which thou hast given us in our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Great. The reading is 1 Timothy chapter 5, starting at verse 17. Um, I'm reading from the ESV, if you've got an electric Bible that you can change your version. Um, that's 1 Timothy chapter 5, starting at verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honour, especially those who labour in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says... You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the labourer deserves his wages. Do not submit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. 
In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and all your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Thank you. Well, um, every year at Jake in this session, uh, we, we have been looking at the pastoral epistles um, for the last 10 or more years anyway. Um, uh, that is the epistles to Timothy and to Titus in the New Testament. Those aren't the, other, the only parts of Scripture which are addressed to pastors or are useful to us when thinking about pastoral ministry, but um, they're well-named the pastoral epistles, because there's so much for us here to learn about ministry. This year, we're going to look at 1 Timothy 5, verse 17 onwards that uh, we just had read. And I think this is of great relevance to us in the Church of England today. These verses address issues of clergy pay, clergy discipline, and clergy appointments. I see you're all interested now. Um, Well, I've made the case before um, that Timothy is actually a bishop. He's the bishop of Ephesus. Uh, You may be aware that the Greek terms for overseer or bishop, episkopos, and for elder and presbyter, presbyteros, they overlap in the New Testament in many ways. Early on, however, the lead overseer in an area became a sort of overseer of overseers, a sort of chairman of the council of elders in a place, the bishop, so to speak. Uh, So James seems to have had that role early on in Jerusalem, for example. If you look at the way that uh, he's spoken of and singled out in Acts and in 1 Corinthians and in Galatians, it seems that way. And I think Paul speaks to Timothy and to Titus as if they are the bishops of Ephesus and Crete. One indication of that is right here in the text we're looking at tonight. Granted that Paul expects others in the church to be sort of reading this letter over Timothy's shoulder, as it were, he's still addressing Timothy directly, isn't he? He's telling him how... As chapter 3, verse 15 puts it, how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. And he tells him in that chapter the kind of person who should be appointed as an elder, for example. We looked at that last year. And in chapter 2, he gives instructions on how congregational meetings are to be conducted in every place. So that's the sort of thing you say to a bishop who's got oversight over every place. Here in chapter 5, he gives Timothy instructions on clergy pay, clergy discipline and clergy appointments, presumably because Timothy is expected to be overseeing these things, the appointment and pay and discipline of the elders in Ephesus, like a bishop. 
I mean, if it quacks like a duck and looks like a duck, it's probably a duck, right? If it looks like a bishop and is instructed how to do bishopy things, he's a bishop. Now, all the same, uh, none of us are bishops tonight, I don't think, looking around briefly, no? None of us are bishops. But I still think there's a lot we can learn here about the proper conduct of any kind of gospel ministry, whatever stage we ourselves may be at. So what do we see here? Well, first, my first point, Paul says, pay preachers properly. You've got to have three alliterated, you know, three points, all beginning with the same letter. Pay preachers properly. And that's verses 17 and 18. Let me just read it again from the NIV. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honour, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Now there was meant to be an elder in every church, possibly more than one. Paul and Barnabas had evangelised, for example, in the cities of Iconium and Lystra and Derbe in their missionary journey in Acts chapter 14. They then returned to each of those places, and as the end of Acts 14 verse 23 says, Paul and Barnabas then appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Now there were obviously a number of elders in the gigantic city of Ephesus too where Timothy is based and Paul had in fact called those elders together in Acts chapter 20 for a conference the Ephesian Ministry Assembly, the EMA. Um, and he, he told them they had to be good shepherds of the church of God, Acts 20, verse 28. So here in 1 Timothy 5, he's speaking to the same bunch of people, or about the same bunch of people, the elders of Ephesus. And he speaks of them as those who, uh, do you see the phrase there? Direct the affairs of the church. Uh, the ESV and the King James Version translate that as rule the church. Uh, the Christian Standard Bible, which is you know, popular in some circles, says they are the good leaders. But we mustn't misunderstand. It is not here the secular Greek word for rulers, you know, as in the rulers and authorities, Luke 12, Titus 3, verse 1. No, the elders are not sovereign over the church, sitting on thrones, demanding obedience and submission. No, that Greek word, arche, is never used of Christian leaders in the New Testament. The word here in the Greek is proistemi, and it literally means to go before. Uh, so it's a word which means to guide, to direct, to lead, to regulate, uh, to so influence others as to cause them to follow a recommended course of action, as Lua and Nida's Greek lexicon puts it. That's the job of an elder. It's the same word in 1 Timothy 3, verse 4, for managing, directing your household well. And if they do this well, says Paul, they are worthy of double honour. That sounds good. 
They are worthy of great respect, a sort of reverence. So maybe we should call them reverends. I mean, that's not a bad idea. (laughs) Reverends. Certainly, the New Testament says that we are to have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority. Hebrews 13. Hold them in the highest regard, in love, because of their work. 1 Thessalonians 5. But I think it also here has the sense of honorarium, as in a payment. Because that seems to be what Paul is getting at in the context of verse 18. Good elders are worth paying properly. I'll get to the pay part in a little minute, but in a moment. But just notice how Paul defines directing the affairs of the church well. Good elders, he says, are teaching and preaching elders. He isn't saying, as the NIV might lead you to believe, but he's not saying this. He's not saying it's the work of some elders to preach and teach and the work of some elders not to. I don't think that's what he's saying. That doesn't make sense of the job description that he's given to elders elsewhere. Titus 1 verse 9, for example, or in 2 Timothy. No, he's not creating a distinction between different kinds of elders, a sort of preaching elders over here and administrative lay elders over there or something like that, which is how some of our Presbyterian friends have understood this. No, he's saying elders who lead well are chiefly those who work hard in preaching and teaching. So I think the ESV is better here as it describes those who lead well as those who labour in preaching and teaching, those who toil at it. Not just that's their job, but they're the ones who work hard at it. Those are the good ones. So you can't be a good bishop or a good minister if you don't work hard at your preaching and your teaching. Paul tells Timothy to give precedence to those who labour at their preaching, to give them greater honour. Disappointingly, I'm not sure he does mean that we should literally pay the best preachers twice as much, (laughs) twice as big a stipend. But that would be a better system than the one we have in the Church of England at the moment. (laughs) Archdeacons and bishops are paid more than parish clergy. The higher up the ladder you go... The less preaching you do and the more admin you do. But Paul's saying the superior stipends ought to go to those who are more diligent preachers and work hard at that. Alternatively, I wonder if Calvin may actually be right on this point because he says that Paul means here that if widows, the subject of the first half of chapter 5, if widows are to be honoured, then good Preaching elders are to be honoured even more. I think that's probably closer to what he's saying. But why should ministers get paid at all? Paul brings out two verses of scripture to show us why. One from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. First he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse, uh, 25 verse 4. Do not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. What's a farmyard animal got to do with being a minister of the gospel? What is he saying about me? 
that I've put on a bit of weight or something? Am I an ox? Uh, Well, in 1 Corinthians, this same issue comes up. Some people were questioning whether Paul and Barnabas had a right to make a living out of their gospel work, saying they they should work for a living, tent making or something, and do the preaching stuff for free. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 7, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and doesn't drink its milk? Do I say this on merely human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us. Doesn't he, says Paul? Yes, this was written for us, because whoever ploughs and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap material harvest from you? If others have the right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? And Paul says, of course, in that chapter, he goes on to say that he didn't actually use his right. It is a right, but I'm not going to use it. I'm not going to demand you pay me. But he wants to very clearly establish it is a right. It is okay for ministers to be paid for doing gospel work. So the verse about an ox in the law of Moses is an illustration of this principle, that those who labour in a field have the right to live off that labour. It applies to oxen, who should get some of the grain that they're processing for us to use to sustain them in their work. But it also goes for ministers of the gospel too. If they spend their lives working for the gospel, there's nothing wrong with them being paid for it. (coughs) They can do it for free if they want to, if they're happy to. Why not? But it's okay for them to be paid too. The second Bible verse that Paul quotes here is from Luke chapter 10, verse 7. When Jesus sent out 72 workers into his father's harvest fields to preach the good news, he told them to go wherever they were welcomed. Stay there, he said, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. There's a parallel verse in Matthew chapter 10, verse 10. But that says the worker is worth his food, not wages. So interestingly, Paul is quoting the exact words from Luke's gospel. Which is interesting. We know that Paul and Luke worked closely together, don't we, in the book of Acts and from 2 Timothy. What's even more interesting here, though, is that Paul calls Luke's gospel scripture. Isn't that interesting? So at the time when 1 Timothy's written, probably you know, mid-60s AD, there were already writings from the early church which could be referred to as scripture. In 2 Peter 3.16, uh, the apostle Peter implies that Paul's own letters should also be regarded as scripture. So we have in the early church then a testimony to the development of a new body of writings which can be placed on a par with the Old Testament. And Paul does that by quoting one from the Old and one from the New right here. So he quotes the law of Moses 
and the Gospel of Luke to establish that gospel workers are worthy of a stipend. So he's telling Timothy, in his capacity as an overseer of the ministry in Ephesus, that he's to make sure ministers are paid properly. As uh, Robert Yarbrough says in his commentary, elders who are skilled, effective and hardworking in these areas are always at a premium. Timothy must make sure they are affirmed in an enterprise that can be imperiled by discouragement from many quarters, including the elders' own lethargy, the difficulty of the task and the inability to see how the hard work of ministry done with integrity is worth it in the long haul. I think that remains true today. Paul doesn't say, of course, how much the elders should be paid exactly. It doesn't say that they should also have a house right next door to the church provided for them, or a pension, or water bills and council tax and travel expenses paid, and maybe a conference or two during the year. (laughs) Though there's nothing necessarily wrong with those things if it's appropriate in the context. It says clergy remuneration packages should meet their need, but not necessarily their greed. In some parts of the world, the church errs on one side or the other, doesn't it? In America, some of the pastoral pay packets that we hear about seem astronomically absurd by our standards. But in Africa and Asia and South America... It's not always enough. Well, now, at a time when clergy pay has seen a substantial reduction in real terms in the last few decades, I still think it's worth saying that the Church of England does give us a reasonably good deal. There are issues with housing and enlarged benefices and inadequate increases in pay at a time of high inflation and multiplying energy bills. But in general, it is still possible to make a living as a gospel worker in the Church of England in a way that it is not in some other denominations. You're never going to be rich in this job, unless you're corrupt. And there's no bonus structure Um, such as you might find in the secular world of work, where your peers may be raking it in. But you can eat the grain while you process it, and that's pretty good. I do think we have a way to go, however, when it comes to the non-ordained workers and oxen in our churches as my esteemed colleague Dr Kirsten Burkett has made clear in an excellent talk on complementarianism in our churches, which you can find on the Church Society website, she says that women's workers are not as well provided for in this regard, and the same may well be true of those who labour in the field of children's and youth work. They may not be elders as such, But those people are still workers in God's harvest fields and deserve adequate and appropriate wages for the jobs they do, as well as 
adequate and appropriate theological training. So Paul says, pay preachers properly. Second, Paul also tells Timothy to discipline ministers firmly but fairly without favouritism. Firmly but fairly without favouritism. That's verses uh, 19 to 21. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so the others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favouritism. The sad but necessary truth here is that there will be accusations made against church leaders. I should probably give you a trigger warning at this point because none of this is very easy to talk about or very nice, is it? Being ordained as an elder does not make one immune from sinful temptations and the corruption which ever lurks in the heart of each one of us. Ministers will fall. It's as inevitable as political scandals and as common as sunburn. So let's not be naive. Paul said to Timothy's own elders in Acts chapter 20, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. So false teaching can arise in churches even if they've been planted and led by the Apostle Paul himself. And yet we're not just talking here about the church being rent asunder by schisms and distressed by heresies, are we? We're also talking about serious charges of one kind or another. Sexual misconduct, bullying, abuse, egregious sin. I don't know what it's been like for you, but I found it bewildering, dizzying over the last few years. How many cases there have been of well-known evangelical people doing unspeakably wrong and stupid things and wrecking their ministries and other people's lives. John Smythe, Jonathan Fletcher, Steve Timmis, Mike Pilavachi, Mark Driscoll, Stephen Sizer. I could go on. Indefensible. But there have also been many cases that you won't necessarily have heard of. Serious cases of clergy misconduct, which have resulted in them being dismissed and prohibited from ministry, even if the tabloids don't hear about it, and it's not featured in EN. And of course, it isn't just evangelicals either. Of course. Bishop Peter Ball was not an evangelical. Neither was Bishop Victor Whitsey. 
don't Google those Anglo-Catholic and liberal names if you want to sleep well. So it's inevitable that this will happen. That's why Paul has to talk about it. Also, sadly inevitable, are vexatious complaints and accusations against ministers. Accusations which are deliberately irksome and stem from personal rivalries or resentments or envy or pride or pique. As one 17th century commentator put it, the ministry is liable everywhere to malicious allegations from people of ill intent. Timothy and the other elders may well have had to take the heat of criticism for how they've been dealing with false teaching in Ephesus or how they were dealing with the controversial financial support being given to the widows, which is why Paul spent so long talking about that in the first part of this chapter. One bishop told me recently that he'd had a long screed of a complaint made to him officially against one of his clergy, and it was, to use the bishop's words, egregious and malevolent. Someone else that I know had a complaint made against him to his bishop because he wore brown shoes. <laughs> the platform formerly known as Twitter is absolutely full of this kind of stuff. And because there are also lots of horrific true stories on there as well, the vexatious and unfounded criticisms can take on a veneer of authenticity. No smoke without fire, right? Let me ask you this. Here's a quiz. Who said this? Not only is this the devil's stratagem, we see also that we are much too credulous and sensitive to the merest whiff of rumour. When something bad is said about ministers of God's word, we are quick to credit it. We itch, or so it seems, to hear them slandered. Any guesses? Calvin. It was Calvin. So this wasn't yesterday. It's not this week. It's not in this month's EN by someone writing to the letters page. That's Calvin in the 16th century. It's not a new problem that we're talking about here. Which is why we absolutely must have a proper procedure for hearing complaints and disciplining clergy. That's as necessary as the white lines separating motorway lanes and as essential as lemsip in the cold and flu season. Paul tells Timothy, as the bishop of Ephesus, that he must make sure... The discipline system is fair and firm and that all accusations should not be assumed to be true and uncritically accepted. First, he says, the system must be fair. There has to be a way to screen out garrulous and malevolent accusations without taking up an inordinate amount of time and money. So Paul says, don't even entertain 
or receive an accusation against an elder unless it's on the basis of two or three witnesses. That's another example, I think, of Paul taking New Testament church regulations from the Old Testament law. So Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6, requires nobody should be put to death on the evidence of only one witness. It's just sensible to set the bar that high uh, in a case of such seriousness. Deuteronomy 19.15 has the same rule for all crimes in general. In Matthew 18, Jesus also establishes this two or three witnesses rule, uh, and they are required to establish testimony against a brother or sister who sins and to try to persuade them to listen, which is obviously alluding to this same principle of two or three witnesses. So since a serious accusation against an elder could rightly end in a death penalty on their ministry, so to speak, it must not even be considered unless there are two or three witnesses. Now, I don't think that can apply in those cases where, by the very nature of the case, there's only one witness to the alleged crime. So you can't find three witnesses to a rape or to a child abuse allegation, things that so often happen in secret. And you can't, therefore, dismiss those kind of allegations purely on the grounds that there aren't two or three witnesses, as the Jehovah's Witnesses tried to do in a recent rape case. They said, oh, we won't even hear that case because there aren't two or three witnesses. That's not what this is about. I don't think this text is a safeguarding risk. What it's trying to do is give us a sensible rule for assessing whether a case is serious enough to be admitted to an ecclesiastical tribunal. Things like sexual abuse shouldn't even go to an ecclesiastical court as they are serious crimes in secular law and should be processed by police and judges and juries. God requires that we obey the law of the land, Romans 13, Titus 3, for example, and we must report such serious crimes to them. Paul may not mean so much that there needs to be two or three people who have seen the crime, but the two or three people should be involved in assessing whether the case is serious enough to be received and heard by the ecclesiastical court. Either way, I think this is all very relevant today, where ministries and livelihoods could be seriously undermined by a single libelous accusation that leads to gossip and worse. There needs to be a fair system of due process, which we all respect and trust. Because if there isn't one, then anybody with a blog and a social media account can run riots and cover with shame those who are trying to lead the church. There also has to be a firmness about the process, Paul says, the process of ecclesiastical discipline. Verse 20, those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone. 
so that the others may take warning. I think what Paul has in mind here is what he did with the Apostle Peter in Galatians. You remember when Peter was off the rails, Paul confronted him to his face in front of them all. Galatians 2. Public sins by public people need public rebuke. If a minister is to be removed from his position, we should get more than one line of legalese hidden away on a diocesan website somewhere. There should be a public statement of wrongdoing published by the proper authorities so we've got clarity. But also so that others who are tempted or involved in similar sins may take warning. As Calvin said when he preached on this this text, he said, when we see a minister of God's word dismissed and falling, so to speak, when we see that, notice, not if, when we see ministers falling from the top to the bottom, as it were, we should be very much shaken. It is a scandal which should make us quake and cause our hair to stand on end. For the pulpit is God's seat from which he chooses to rule our souls. Perhaps that's why the last few years have been so upsetting. Because it's like being in a constant earthquake with your hair standing on end. Verse 21 also says, The whole process of church discipline is to be carried out without favouritism. I charge you, he says, in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and do nothing out of favouritism. This is a very serious charge to show no partiality in the exercise of discipline because God and Christ and the angels are all watching. It's not just the people you can see or read their tweets, but another world is watching what is happening. So Timothy is therefore not to decide beforehand that an elder is not guilty simply because they're one of us, a good man, a good chap. He is not to be more lenient with his friends. Even the most senior elders should be subject to the discipline of the church rather than being guarded by layers and layers and layers of lawyers and wrapped in protective red tape. So church discipline is absolutely essential for a healthy church and it must be carried out fairly, firmly, without favouritism. How balanced that is, I think. The biblical balance. Protect ministers, but don't be prejudiced in their favour. And don't hold back when they sin. Finally, Paul tells Timothy to be very careful with ordinations and appointments. Interesting subject for us. Ordinations and appointments. More specifically, I think he says... Be future-minded about the appointment of elders to lead the church. Verse 22. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. 
That's ordination, I think. And do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Stop drinking only water. Use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. The sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. You see, having warned him that his exercise of church discipline is being observed by God and the angels, now he tells Timothy that history will judge his ordination decisions. Do not hastily ordain people by the laying on of hands. Don't be quick to appoint people just because you desperately need more hands on deck. Take your time to properly assess whether they have the necessary character and qualifications as outlined in chapter 3 of this letter. Don't fast-track people just because you need more of their type, whatever that is, for some reason. To do so, to be responsible for putting them in a position of leadership and trust without doing due diligence, is to share in their sins. It is not healthy for the church. And that's why it takes a while to get through the whole discernment process and appointments process in the church. That's a good thing. Don't be impatient if you're in the middle of it right now, um, either hoping for ordination oh, or someone's calling you about a job. Um, <laughs> there are good reasons that it takes the church time to decide if and when you are ready for a ministry. Judgment Day will reveal how good those decisions are. As verse 24 says, some people should obviously not be ordained as elders because their sins are already apparent. Other people's ministry disqualifying sins and character traits only become apparent slowly and trail behind them. But they will come out sooner or later and they will damage the church if you appoint such people. So be mindful of your future legacy, the legacy that you're bequeathing to the church, Timothy, if you lower your standards for ordination or push people through too quickly for some reason. It's not good. On the other hand, some people's good deeds and potential can be seen immediately, and some can't be seen immediately, but one day they won't, be remain, they won't remain hidden those are the better candidates. Can you find those, the people who will turn out to be good? Finally, um, I should just mention the brief aside that Paul gives in verse 23. I mean, I could do a whole talk on this. It's so interesting. Verse 23, but just a, a briefly. Paul says, stop drinking any water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. I'm just going to have some water. <laughs> It is just water, just in case you're worried. Um, those who are teetotal and think that everybody else should be too um, often have to do interpretative gymnastics around this verse. Um, I've heard it said that the wine is obviously not to be drunk, but to be administered externally to Timothy's stomach. That's obviously nonsense. 
Now, Paul doesn't say here, get drunk on wine, which he clearly forbids in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Timothy is only to take a little, he says. And the reason is that Timothy has a bad stomach and is frequently ill, and drinking only water is not helping him. I mean, water quality wasn't always great back then, I guess, um, but he needs a more balanced approach to his diet. Um, I think that's where probably there is an application here for us today. Not in the specifics of wine, though (laughs) last week I did have a bad stomach and the day after I had a small glass of wine because I was thinking about this text and I feel fine now. Um, (laughs) But I don't think that's the point. Uh, Rather, I think the application is in the, the reminder to leaders in the church that we have to look after our bodies as well as our souls. On the one side, we mustn't be overly ascetic and too pious about our strenuous suffering. Maybe Timothy was going in that direction because he was trying not to be like the false teachers or trying not to give offence to those who are more ascetic. I don't know, maybe there's something in the context like that. But we're not to do that. We're not to be overly ascetic. Calvin says, I love this from Calvin, it's very... uh, He's very good as a preacher. He says, we should try to leave a well, lead a well-balanced life and avoid too much austerity, for God does not want us to kill ourselves. <laughs> Quite right. On the other side, however, thinking about this issue of looking after our bodies and our souls, uh, Gerald Bray, who's not contemporary with uh, Calvin, um, more recent, <laughs> Gerald Bray puts it well in his commentary. He says, out-of-shape pastors harm not only themselves but the church as well and it is not a sign of piety to neglect the needs of the body as long as we are called to minister in it which one of those do you need to hear i don't know the needs of the church are many brothers and sisters in terms of clergy pay clergy discipline and clergy appointments but we also need to be concerned for clergy well-being. Let's look after one another in these things too. Let's pray. Let's pray. Let's commit these things to the Lord that we've been thinking about tonight. Heavenly Father, in whose sight we serve and in whose perfect justice we trust, give us, we pray, elders, who directs the affairs of the church well, fair and firm systems of discipline administered without favouritism, and such a sense of eternity on our hearts that we will keep ourselves and our churches healthy. For the glory of your name and the good of your people. Amen.